actually the fifth time that We Don't Have Time has organized an Earth Day broadcast. And this film we're, the film we're about to show uh, is some clips from earlier broadcasts and also explains that what We Don't Time is all about. We believe by rewarding climate solutions and warning all the polluters, we will make it profitable to save our planet and super expensive to destroy it. We must now zoom in on the quality and the implementation of plans, on measuring and analyzing, on reporting transparency and accountability. We want to be better. And that's why we are open for climate dialogue. We want to know what you think and so that we can improve. Let's give climate love to those that have the solutions. And let's send climate warning to those that needs to change. I invested in We Don't Have Time because I actually agree, we don't have time. We're trying to reduce CO2 collectively. If we don't act urgently and quickly, catching up later won't work. The drive to net zero is the growth story of the 21st century. We had about $350 billion of direct subsidies and tax expenditures, tax breaks, given to fossil fuels. Have such an enormous mobilization of business, finance, civil society and science all gathered here. We have halved our own emissions between 2012 and 2017 and now, are now at the 70% reduction. SSAB has decided to be the first steel company in the world to offer fossil-free steel to the market in just a few years. There's lack of clarity and it just feeds, it feeds greenwashing and delays meaningful action. We just have to go quickly. We have the technology, we don't have to develop technology. We're going to create this huge wealth transfer from energy producers who represent a tiny minority of people to energy consumers who represent all people. We are in a climate emergency and we are very far from where we need to be. Get ahead of the curve or you're gonna lose. I was able to attend one demonstration that uh, kicked off at uh, Kelvin, Kelvin Grove all the way to George Square. Mm -hmm. And we had a lot of activists. What I feel that I can bring is uh, a young audience that maybe doesn't know what to think about climate change. What is happening here, negotiating, it's so wrong from our perspective. You don't put a price on your mother. Now, personally, I don't believe the fossil fuel industry should continue to be allowed to operate the way it's been operating for the last several decades. We want to bring a voice to all the new solutions, the new ideas, the new entrepreneurs who are out there trying to kind of make a break and create this new climate economy. They're setting a great, a great example and there's lots of other big businesses that um, should follow their example. I really want to urge 
everybody just to be thinking more about land use and not just electrifying vehicles to, you know, maintain the environment that got us here today. They want to ban the word burgers, sausages and steaks from being used on vegan and vegetarian products. Tell them what they do so that they will be encouraged to do more. And together with the community, our users, we share this to millions of people on social media. So this is getting noticed. Let's bring in Shetha Chakrabarty tonight, risk and behavioral scientist and president of U.S. operations for We Don't Have Time. As the name says, we don't have time. Stockholm Moses Bonovama at Laysa Ladaina Alwaqt. We don't have time. Asayed Ingmar Ronsberg. Joining us for more is We Don't Have Time's Nick Nuttall. Nick, welcome to the program. And Nick, about this counter, we're speaking of numbers. This is a clock that shows you how much money has been spent on fossil fuel subsidies mm. since the beginning of the COP. We have a climate crisis and we're still subsidizing the, um, the industry, which is causing the crisis. I mean, it's completely dumb. I'm a finance guy. It makes no sense whatsoever. $2.5 trillion went into subsidies for fossil fuel. That's a definition of insanity. Still, this is a positive. It's the first COP decision that actually mentions coal power or fossil fuel subsidies. We need to communicate climate action because if only a few people or a few companies are doing climate action without communicating it to others, we will not solve the climate crisis. One company that acknowledged the importance to act on the environment in 1972 was Volvo. In 1972, Per Junhammer, its CEO, acknowledged that Volvo's products had a negative environmental impact and stated that we were determined to do something about it. Let us introduce our first guest in this segment. Meet Dr. Anders Berger, Director of Public Affairs at Volvo Group Headquarters. Anders is a transport solution specialist with extensive engagement in the public discourse of transport efficiency, e-mobility and connectivity related to the environmental challenges of the road transport system. Anders, Anders, it's great to have you here on the show. You. you have the floor. Thank you. Since 1970, Earth Day has been celebrated by billions of people around the globe, promoting awareness and uh, health of our environment. On April 22, 1920, 1970, sorry, a little later, 20 million Americans were inspired to take to the streets, parks and auditoriums to call for a healthy, sustainable Earth. Because of those national rallies, the first Earth Day helped to create the United States Environmental Protection Agency and later led to the introduction of new environmental laws such as the Clean Air, Clean Water and Endangered Species Acts. And now, on that same day, each year, we celebrate the anniversary of this modern environmental movement, which today is one of the largest secular observances in the world marked by more than one billion people globally, raising awareness of the need to mobilize and drive positive action 
for the future of our planet. This year, we also commemorate 50 years since the first UN conference on the human environment was held in Stockholm and celebrate 50 years of global environmental action that have followed. Sustainability and limiting our impact on the environment are not new topics for Volvo Group. In fact, we are one of the early adopters and have been talking about these concerns for years. Dating right back to that first UN conference in June 1972, where Volvo declared it is our responsibility to not only be part of the problem, but also be part of the solution. worst threat is that practically all forms of transportation also pollute the air with exhaust gases. Even electric trains pollute the atmosphere, not here on the railway line, but where the electricity is generated, at the power station. Other sources of electrical power also play their part in spoiling the environment. Dams and artificial lakes radically affect nature. We must face the facts. All forms of transportation affect the environment. And it was here, 50 years ago, at that UN conference, that Volvo committed to address its role on the environment and how we can limit the impact we have. Since then, environmental care has been one of our core values and a fundamental part of our ambition as we strive towards more sustainable transport and infrastructure solutions. And we have made great progress, reducing the emissions of air pollutants from our trucks by up to 90% and decreasing fuel consumption and CO2 emissions by 40%. But demand for transport is increasing driven by population growth, urbanization, and increasing e-commerce. So we must meet this demand uh, with transport and infrastructure solutions that are more sustainable. And we are confident that our trucks, services, and operations will lead the way there. For us, environmental care is about so much more than just clean air. It's about using resources responsibly and about strategies for environmentally sound and cost-efficient infrastructure. Ultimately, allowing us to provide clean, silent and efficient transport solutions that offer entirely new possibilities for modern societal development. But as well as talking, we have also been delivering tangible improvements to our operations and supply chains, as well as to the products and services we produce. So, you could ask, how are we leading the change? Uh, it's clear from COP26 that we need to go further and faster to deliver change. And remember, this is the decade of action. So what is Volvo Group doing? In 2021, we committed to ambitious science-based targets that will see us reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions already by 2040, 10 years earlier than the SPTI commitment of 2050. The pace of change is important. And we have set ambitious milestones along the way to help us meet our commitments. Most logistic companies see electrification as the route toward decarbonisation of the industry. Most organisations have put their, put their foot firmly in one camp, be it battery electric or fuel cell electric. And the two are often, too often actually portrayed as competitors. 
at Volvo Group, we see things a little differently. We believe the right way is a three-pronged approach to zero greenhouse gas emissions. Battery electric combined with fuel cell electric running on green hydrogen and to a limited extent internal combustion engine running on biofuels. Battery electric trucks are the ideal solution uh, for shorter medium-range applications such as local distribution, refuse collection, regional haulage, where the vehicle often returns to a fixed depot for recharging. And we have already battery-powered trucks operating in urban areas around the globe. But for heavy-duty and long-haul transport, batteries will be challenging due to limited driving range and battery weight limiting the payload. In addition, if the truck doesn't return to depot at the end of the day, charging can become a challenge. This is where hydrogen fuel cells come in. Fuel cell trucks make their own electricity on board from store hydrogen and have longer driving ranges, shorter refueling times and less payload penalty. But of course, our biggest challenge is emissions from our products, which is why we focus on electromobility. It's also here we can really make an impact and help other businesses that utilize transport in their value chains. But we also need to look at the impact of our manufacturing and how we improve our value chain, the circular economy. This is already part of the initial product development and design process. In our newest business area within Volvo Group, Volvo Energy, we, together with partners, are exploring and developing new charging solutions for batteries during their first life. And we are looking also at how we can give used batteries a second life in different applications, often outside the transport industry, such as for storing solar power in apartment complexes. We're developing the vehicles, the trucks, the buses and construction machines of the future. But we urgently need to have the charging infrastructure. We need to have the grid with the right capacity and the generation of green energy to make the adoption of these vehicles a practical reality. The same goes for production and distribution of green hydrogen. We need to see charging stations being built much more quickly than we see today. We all heard of the chicken and egg dilemma, and it's really applicable here. It doesn't matter how many great fossil-free electric trucks we offer if the infrastructure is simply not in place to support their uptake. And this is why we are now teaming up with our toughest competitors in the truck industry, Daimler Trucks and Trayton, to actually invest in the, chicken in, sorry, in the charging infrastructure industry. We intend to build 1,700 charging stations across Europe for heavy-duty vehicles. It's a good start, it's a strong signal, but it's far from sufficient. Partnership is the new leadership, and with that we mean that we need open-minded and innovative ways of cooperating to accelerate the pace of change, the likes of which we haven't seen before. The climate crisis is not a challenge we can face alone as a single company. Instead, Business leaders, customers, suppliers, investors and policymakers and NGOs must work together to ensure a sustainable and equitable future for all. We are convinced that innovations will provide at least some of the answers society is looking for and we want to be at the forefront and lead the way. 
That's why we are working with research institutions and universities to develop technologies that increase fuel efficiency and to develop and implement the use of alternative fuels in cooperation with the energy sector. A few examples of these new partnerships. Daimler and Volvo partnership to accelerate hydrogen fuel cell technology. Volvo, Daimler, Trayton, the partnership building charging infrastructure. Ovaco Steel, H2 Green Steel and Hitachi Power Grids together with Volvo to use surplus green hydrogen from the new green steel industry into fueling other sectors, including heavy duty trucks. The hybrid project with SSAB, LKB and Vattenfall creating this beautiful fossil free uh, mining hauler. We are also one of the founding members of the First Movers Coalition. A great initiative that was launched in Glasgow during COP26. It's about companies utilizing their individual purchasing power to commit to buy fossil-free transport, fossil-free steel, air travel, etc. This creates an impressive pull effect that is now spreading all over the globe. If your company hasn't signed up already, please visit the World Economic Forum website. You are most welcome in the club. Climate change is the challenge of our generation. For 50 years, our connection to the environment has been a core value, providing inspiration that has helped shape and guide our operations. It is our ambition to lead our industry to a net zero future. Today, tomorrow, and in the weeks, years, and decades to come, we'll do more and achieve more for the environment if we work together. But sustainability is not just about reducing our climate footprint. It's far bigger than that. It's about how we handle valuable resources and how we treat one another as people. And most important of all, it is about taking action now. That makes a real difference for our customers, our partners, suppliers, our employees and society at large as we work together to shape the world we want to live in. Thank you. Anders, yeah, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to hear your presentation. Thank you. Bye -bye. Okay, thank you. Anyone who heard or read the latest assessment of the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and these are the thousands of scientists around the world picked by their governments to look at all the peer-reviewed research on climate change. Anybody who read or heard this will know that it's not just time for urgent action, it's long overdue. But there still is time to act if the politics can respond to the science in time. Here, we're going to have four members of the Earth for All team that have produced this very special report 50 years on by the Club of Rome for this Stockholm Plus 50 conference. They're going to give us a deeper dive into their landmark report, and we have the honour to preview it.
Sandrine Dixon-Declave is the co-president of the Club of Rome and one of the project leaders of the Earth for All initiative. Sandrine, it's a delight to see you again. <laughs> so tell us, why Earth for All, why now, and what do you want to achieve? Hi, Nick. It's great to see you too. And thanks again for this very important initiative. We don't have time. I think it pretty much summarizes what we think about at uh, the Club of Rome and Earth for All, as you know, we're marking the 50th anniversary of the Club of Rome seminal publication, The Limits to Growth. And it's really time to say enough is enough to all leaders to stand up to the plate and put in place economic and financial systems that service people, planet and prosperity together. So how do we do that? Knowing that we only have eight years left in this decisive decade. COVID conflict and climate change is shaking our economies, our well-being, but it's also woken us up and so many people across the globe to transformation and the fact that we can transform for good or for bad. So what are we seeing? Well, we're seeing, first of all, that 74% of people in G20 countries want transformation and they want well-being economies. And together, this international initiative, the Earth for All initiative, has worked by bringing together economists from across the globe, by bringing together modelers that are looking at system dynamic modeling in order to show the pathways that are necessary for long-term prosperity for all on a relatively stable planet. And it's possible. It's possible to transform our economies, to shift from GDP growth that leaves the majority behind to well-being economies that service people, planet, and prosperity. But we need nothing less than five turnarounds on ending poverty, on addressing gross inequality, reaching gender equity, transitioning to clean energy, and making our food system healthy for people and for the planet. If we act now with the largest effort and investment in the decade between 2020 to 2030, so as I said, we only have eight more years, then within a single generation, we can achieve the sustainable development goals and work beyond them and remain within the planetary boundaries. This will require reshaping markets. And we show clearly in our data, in our analysis, in these pathways that we can do that step by step. We show that we can also rethink our economies, bring in circular and regenerative economies, look at the well-being economy indicators and go beyond GDP. And that we also very much need to think about that systemic transformation at scale and how we can optimize our policies so that we're not just focusing on climate, but we're looking at climate from an equity, an equality, a poverty lens. This systemic transformation at scale and at speed will require collective action by the world's governments, by citizens, by leaders and businesses, investors, all of the above. But we also know that the investments required to deliver these solutions amount to approximately 2 to 4% of national income. And, and that's not a huge amount. We can do this, and it can be covered by the world's richest 10%, who control 50% of global income. So in summary, the window remains open to create a much better future for the majority of people on a livable planet, we have to stop crowdfunding catastrophe. We have to adopt an emergency plan of action. I was just on the Stockholm Plus 50 leadership dialogues, and I called out to leaders once again, we need action. We need timetables. We need commitments that are going to give us clear goals 
to achieve these turnarounds. Earth for All shows what's possible. Together, we can make it possible. We will offer the policy recommendations necessary and work with governments and citizens to make sure that this becomes a movement so that the next Earth Day, and I promise you this, and every Earth Day henceforth, we can show that we're not only the most intelligent species, as Jane Goodall likes to remind us, but also the wisest, because Jane Goodall warns us that we are not so wise when we look at the existential risk that we have created for ourselves by continuing to live beyond the planetary boundaries. So this is good news, and I'm looking forward to hearing from the other panelists who are working with me on this incredible project. And the call out to all of you listening today is go to the Earth for All website and follow us and join the movement. Great. <clears throat> Thanks, Sandrine. And uh, great. I hope the governments are going to pick up this document at uh, Stockholm Plus 50 and do what they need to do. So let's move on. David Colster is a postdoctoral researcher at the Stockholm Resilience Center at Stockholm University. David works at the Planetary Boundaries Research Lab, where he studies feedbacks between human development, the economy, and planetary boundaries. He is a system dynamist in the Earth for All initiative. And David, uh, the question to you is, what is the novelty of Earth for All? So listening to uh, Sandrine and how she explained how this project worked with the five necessary turnarounds, we're working with the system dynamics model. And that's a way of, so to say, quantify system thinking, where the relationship between the human world and, and the na nature and the nature world is interrelated in the model. And the model is developed by Jürgen Randers, who was also one of the co-authors of the Limits of Growth back in 1972. The model that we have is providing a transparent way to see how different relationships and assumptions ingrained in the model can be shared and tried by different people. You can look at the model, you can work with it, and you can try different assumptions. We see it as a consistent framework illustrating the five turnarounds and the ideas behind the whole Earth for All uh, initiative that Sandrine uh, introduced. So in that sense, the model is not a final answer, but rather a tool to provide questions and ask what-if scenarios. How, how do these different things interrelate? And when it comes to the human dimension and nature, we really see that looking back in on decades and centuries, how human population have grown exponentially um, due to better conditions for human life. But now we see that this has been counteracted by people choosing to have fewer children in rich countries. But also at the same time, economies have grown significantly. So we see that both the population and the economy is driving environmental pressures, pressures on the planetary boundaries that we really need to stay within. But it's important to highlight that the interrelations between the human and nature now in the Anthropocene are so important that we cannot neglect it. We cannot look at one side, we cannot look at nature in itself or the population in itself, but we need to, to put them together, and that's what we're doing uh, in this modeling endeavor. One insight from gathering data and working with this model that we have gotten is that it's only 
below a certain income threshold that we see great achievement of income providing capabilities and human needs for people in the sense of educational outcomes, poverty eradication and, and so on, and limiting hunger and so on and so forth. But above around $15,000 per person in income, we see that the, the benefits of, of income is levering off. And this is why we're reaching a state where we need to focus more on, instead of growing the economy at all costs, to focus more on creating a well-being society. We need to find ourselves at home, as has been highlighted by uh, Catherine Trebek from the Well-Being Economy Alliance. So, countries with high incomes need to shift away from, from focusing on incomes to focus on good life. What is good life? Less stress, maybe. More education and, and better, better life for all. When it comes to the environmental science part of the model, we see different kinds of pressures on different planetary boundaries. Climate change that we talk mainly about today is, of course, very much related to the aggregated economic activity. But we can also see that by shifting to renewable energy, shifting to eating less red meat, and so on, we can see that the effect can be limited, as well as looking at different ways to downscale our economies. But the difficult nut to crack here is, of course, to, to shift from one environmental harmful activity to something else that is less harmful, but also that does not affect other of the planetary boundaries. Because nature is one, and nature's boundaries are absolute. So I want to raise uh, the fact that we're focusing on carbon very much today, that what Anders said in the opening session, and that was confirmed by Susan Chomba as well, is that poverty is persisting. And that's why we really need to look at these questions as interrelated. The climate change is harming those worse off, those living in poor countries, the most, while they are not responsible for the situation we are today. But now we need to work together. We need to work together to realize these five transformations that we have proposed by the Earth for All initiative and that are illustrated with the modeling work that we are working with. So we need to tackle energy and food transformation, but also inequality, poverty and, crucial, women empowerment. Super. David, thank you very much indeed. This is a very bang, 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 bang session. So we're now going to move on to uh, the next uh, guest. But thank you very much indeed. Hi, we've got Dr. Lewis uh, Akenji, uh, who's the managing director of the Hot or Cool Institute, and that's a public interest think tank that explores the intersection between society and sustainability. Lewis also sits on the Earth for All Transformational Economics Commission, and that's a group of leading economists and thinkers committed to a transformation for well-being. Lewis, you've been given the question, what will we have to give up in order to achieve this transformation? And how will it look across the world? What will we gain? All right. Thank you so much. It's uh, wonderful to be here. I've, I've been listening to Sandrine and, and David. And, and I must say, instead of asking the question, what we have to give up, I would ask the question, what do we have to do to get our lives better than we see today? Why? Because what the Earth for All uh, project has done, it, it's on the 50th anniversary of the um, 
limits to growth report is really gone back to the root of the question. Why is it that we're consuming above our capacity or above the capacity of the earth to sustain our ways of living. And in exploring that, it's exposed quite a new, uh, quite a number of things and it suggested quite a number of solutions. It chimes very easily with what the IPCC recent report has just said, that by through changes in consumption and lifestyles, we can reduce between 40 and 70% of greenhouse gas emissions before 2050. Now, that's a huge amount of potential just sitting in changing the way we live towards better and, and well-being for everybody. At a hot or cool institute, those of you who have been following would know that we released the 1.5 degree lifestyles, looking at the connection between changes in lifestyles and contributing and the contributions that this can make towards a 1.5 degree aspirational target of the Paris Agreement. What we find is that our current lifestyle carbon footprints are at about 4.6 tons per person per year. And in order to meet this Paris Agreement target or the, uh, reap the benefits of the 70% reductions in footprint emissions, which the IPCC talks about, we need to drop to about 0.7 tons per person per year. Now, that is radical. This is the reason why the Earth Forward Project is not just talking about transformation, it's talking about turnarounds. But once you start looking into the details of this, this is really where the problem is. And what is becoming very clear is that if we do not address the social tensions that we're finding in our society nowadays, we might even have social collapse before we have climate collapse. Now, what do we see in there? We're seeing a lot of eco-anxiety. We're seeing a lot of inequality between genders, between Southern and Northern countries, between the rich and the poor across generations. Uh, a very typical example of this is we're just going through a pandemic. And in fact, at the peak of this pandemic, while 40 million Americans, for example, were filing for bankruptcy, the billionaires saw their wealth grow by about half of a trillion dollars. Now, that's the perversion we have in our society nowadays, right? This is one of the reasons why uh, one of the suggestions which the Earth for All project is coming out with is that we should consider the possibility of capping wealth in society where 10% of the richest in a country are not allowed to own more than 40% of national income. Of, of national income. These are some of the things we'll be needing to look at. But it's not just an issue of people changing their lifestyles. It is how governments, businesses, and so on, join forces to make it easier for sustainable ways of living to become default. In this, there are two main things I'd like to talk about. The first one is an approach which is very old to most people, Government traditionally uses what is called choice editing to make sure that we have public safety, public health, security, and so on. The point here is the government uses a certain criteria to allow certain things in society and to edit out certain things. So think of guns, for example. It's very difficult, at least for those of us in Europe, to walk into a shop and buy a gun. This is because governments have decided in the interest of public safety, they've edited that out. But in a climate emergency, shouldn't we be using sustainability as a criteria for editing in and out the options that we have in society? So what are some of these? It is very obvious. What do we uh, edit out? Those high-impact areas in society, especially those that have private benefit and public burden, such as uh, um, use of fossil fuels, uh, uh, second homes, 
and uh, loyalty programs for five-star hotels and, and, and frequent flyers, all of these would need to be edited out. What needs to be edited in opportunities for regenerative agriculture, for plant-based diets, and other ways of living that are more in keeping with the targets that we've agreed upon. But it's not just about editing or taking away things. It's also about finding social innovation, spurring the spirit in society amongst businesses to find new ways of meeting our needs that are different from what we've traditionally seen. In this regard, the Earth for Our project is also going to come up with something called the Wellbeing Index, building on the work of the Wellbeing Economy Alliance. What it recognizes, and which I think every economist or even non-economist would tell you, is that what we now call the GDP is a brutal dis, uh, extractive and, and colonial measure of what it means to be a developed country or a developed economy. And we need to move away from this towards 21st century measures for actually how to live in society. David has mentioned well-being. What this index will do, what the well-being um, index will do is look at five areas where research has shown very clearly that we need to start measuring if we want to see people's life get, lives get better in a sustainable world. The first one is living a life of dignity. So people have enough to pay to live in comfort and safety. The second one is an abundance or restored nature. This is why climate change is such a major issue. It's not just the mathematics of it. It is that uh, the, the more the climate changes, the more discomfort we will face in society. The third one is a sense of connection, a sense of belonging and building of institutions that allow people to participate in society. The fourth is fairness. We're seeing extremes of poverty and wealth in society, and we need to start curbing those and getting uh, people on a more equitable basis. And the last but not the least is a sense of meaningful participation in society, of connecting to local communities and economies. If we not, do not do this, I'm afraid sometimes we'll tunnel dig into uh, focusing just on climate change and getting a very broken society in the future. Thank you. Thanks, Lewis. That was absolutely super. Thank you very much indeed and very, very insightful. Cheers. Good. And uh, now the last of the Earth for All musketeers, as I've described them, because they've been really rampaging through this topic. Uh, we've got uh, Lina Belli-Leguio, who is a campaign and participation advisor of the Earth for All initiative. Uh, Lena, um, your question is, how will you take the science and the scenarios of the Earth for All report forward to accelerate this transition? Hi, Nick. Thank you. Hi, everyone. So we've said that nothing less than five extraordinary turnarounds are needed. Ending poverty, addressing inequality, reaching gender equity, transitioning to clean energy and making our food system healthy for people and planet. But Earthfall is a large open initiative. So the science and the model are for everybody to use in advocating for change. The commissioners, such as Lewis, have highlighted the need to act on five extraordinary turnarounds and identified 15 specific policy changes to do that. So we are going through that, as David explained, through a systems perspective, which means that more can be added or articulated by others in each specific context. 
We think that the next decade is decisive, and the first immediate step is Stockholm Plus 50, where we expect and demand an ambitious outcome document. After that, there will be G20 and the COP27, and next year, the Summit for the Future, which is organized by the UN. We'll bring our recommendations, and we hope that others will help us in bringing them too. And especially what we'll advocate for is the need to adopt systems thinking to address the challenge of our time. We cannot solve the climate crisis without solving the poverty and inequality crisis and vice versa. So each turnaround has policy recommendations that will drive a disproportionate impact, like a ripple effect, if you will. Uh, so these are all key asks. But of course, these turnarounds challenge the existing structure. For instance, we'll need to shift, as Lewis said, our economic worldview from extractive to regenerative, and that's both when talking about material cycles, but also money. So firstly, we also ask that governments adopt new economic indicators that redefine what is valued in our society. So Luis talked about the well-being index, which is one of the core indexes that we're working around. We also need to reform the international financial system and trade regulations so that low-income countries can combat poverty and move away from carbon-intensive development paths. That actually has been a policy ask to high-income countries for decades, but we are in a climate emergency that makes delivering these reforms more critical than ever. It won't be fixed by market forces, it won't be fixed by technological innovation, and we can't rely on that. So we ask that high- and middle-income countries' governments take the lead in increasing their spending on these five turnarounds. We also need to unlock a political space to deliver the five turnarounds, a safe space. So how do we do that? We do that by providing the vulnerable populations and the working majority with greater financial security. We call for the introduction of a universal basic dividend scheme, which will be financed by the private sector's use of natural and social commons. And finally, we also ask that governments support a societal debate on economic systems change. For instance, through binding citizen assemblies that will explore the best way to shift to well-being economies in ways that are adapted to the specific needs of local population. So that's our ask to decision makers at Stockholm Plus 50, but also beyond. But then again, we are far from alone in calling for a new economic system. Climate movements, justice movements, equality movements, they all are calling for a new economic system. And so are 74% of citizens across G20 countries. And that's why Earthfall starts from research and modelling and science, but then builds also as a campaign to create a wider movement. It's an open campaign that everybody who agrees on the message can join. It doesn't replace existing initiatives. So we need everybody to demand change to start conversation about the need to upgrade our economic systems. There are many ways you can join a campaign. And so that's our ask as Earthfall to you. Today, we are launching our social media channels. And so we invite you to visit those or our website and find out how you can participate. From next week onwards, on our platforms, we will ask participants to demand change from the politicians. We will start conversations at any levels and every levels on what the economic change we need is. And we will start asking people to lend us their voices to claim their better and upgraded future. And of course, we need a crowd to support our asks. So in May, we'll publish a brief right before Stockholm Plus 50. In September, Earthfall will publish a book describing the five turnarounds and all the solutions and everything that Sandri and Lewis and David have been talking about. And this universal upgrade of a system to reach well-being for all within plans to boundaries, 
it needs you. So until Stockholm Plus 50, if you want to get involved, please join us on the website or on social media. And we're looking forward to seeing you there. Thank you. Super. Uh, thanks, Lena. And uh, what is the name of the website again? Earth for All with a four. Earthforall.org. Dot com, dot org. Dot life. Dot life. Dot life. Okay, fantastic. Thanks very much indeed. And I'm sure everyone's going to log into that and get more information. Super. Bye. Right, we move on to our next section, and it's a, it's a panel with uh, three speakers. Uh, the first uh, speaker I want to introduce is uh, Matthias uh, uh, Frumier, who is the head of delegation to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change in Sweden's Ministry of the Environment. And Matthias has spent most of his professional career in the Swedish Ministry of Foreign Affairs and is currently Sweden's chief climate negotiator. Uh, coming in on uh, Zoom, uh, two other guests. Uh, we've got Christina Persson, the former Minister for the Future. Uh, Christina is the founder of several uh, civil society networks and organizations focusing on the green transformation, and she's worked at the Secretariat for Future Studies at the then Prime Minister Olaf Palmer's office. And Christina is coming in from Sweden, but way, way, way beyond Stockholm, so <laughs> she's not with us in, in person. And then from uh, Exmoor, uh, or maybe London, not sure, so Stanley. We've got uh, Stanley Johnson, International Ambassador of the Conservative Environment Network and author of uh, an amazing uh, book, which I, when I was at UNEP, commissioned him to write, and he wrote it rather beautifully, which was UNEP, the first 40 years, if the camera can see that, which we have here. And Stanley is a former member of the European Parliament, Vice Chairman of the European Parliament's Committee on the Environment, authored many, many, many books, and um, yes, I mean, from social media, everybody now knows, uh, uh, Stanley, that you're also the father of the British Prime Minister, so we'll leave it there. Um, so, let's move on to our first uh, question. Matthias, um, climate action. Uh, we know from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that climate action is, in a sense, uh, really more urgent than ever before. Um, how does a country like Sweden step up its ambition at home and, and also what can it do abroad to, to get the world on track? Well, thanks so much, Nick. As you know, the, the IPCC says that we all need to do more and uh, Sweden and the EU wants to provide that kind of global leadership in terms of sort of setting the right policies in place, providing the right kind of finance and also facilitating the rollout of that kind of innovative technology which we need in, in order to accelerate climate action globally. And this is what we're trying to do at home and also what we're trying to do together with EU partners and other partners in our, in our global work to ensure that we sort of sustain and build that kind of global momentum uh, coming out from COP26, and now, of course, we see Stockholm Plus 50 as sort of a step towards also to COP27 in Egypt in November, where we hope to rally that kind of opportunities that we see in climate action, bringing out new jobs and economic opportunities uh, worldwide. Mm -hmm. and of course, I'm sure that uh, at Stockholm Plus 50 that climate change will come up. It'll be impossible for nations not to, to address it. So uh, we look forward to... Uh, to a stepping stone to the next uh, UN climate conference in, uh, in Egypt uh, from there, yeah. Um, Christina and Stanley, you were both uh, in different capacities, in different ways, in Stockholm in 1972, uh, a moment of history, a moment of optimism, uh, a moment of uh, the world coming together, now seeing environmental issues going global. Um, 
Why today are we staring at so many crises uh, 50 years on? Why does the Club of Rome have to issue another report that, that we need to rally around? Um, why is there so much unfinished business and the clock is ticking so fast? Um, Christina, why don't you come in on that one uh, first? Are you muted, Christina? You may have to unmute. Hello. <laughs> I'm unmuted. I know, yeah, there we go. That was a mini crisis, not as bad as climate change, so it's okay. Yes, Nick, I've asked myself that question many times. Why, are, why isn't the, the political system able to cope with the great challenges that we see ahead of us, and especially the climate challenge, as we have known about it so long? I mean, as late as, as oh, as early, I should say, maybe 1992, the UN nations signed the declaration that they should do what they could to, to reduce emissions in order to stop climate warming. That is 30 years ago. And then everything went on business as usual, as usual. And the uh, emissions just accelerated year after year. And now we are in a situation that still we don't see the right kind of action taken. Not even in Sweden. I'm sorry, Matthias, but we have a Swedish Climate Policy Council that came up with pretty harsh criticism against our Swedish government for not being organized in the right way and not doing the right kind of uh, um, work, not having the system view and not taking a holistic view on change and seeing that, that climate affects all areas of society and that they are all interlinked. Okay. So uh, we need to change our way of working. I think that goes for, for all governments in the world. Some are maybe a little bit better than others, but that is the fundamental reason why we see all these uh, tragic problems all around us, not only climate, but also inequality and, and uh, the social tensions that uh, we increase. Yes. Perhaps we can come back on this in a moment because I also, it strikes me that, that, that it's taken a long time for governments to internalise the, the concepts of circularity, the concepts of, of joining all the dots. You know, there's a bit of atomization within government ministries. You've got one person setting good decarbonisation targets, but you've got a, another one perhaps uh, funding fossil fuel subsidies and looking how to, yeah. to increase fuel production. Stanley, you, uh, when we talked the other day, you were interested in that you felt there had been a bit of a turnaround or a turning moment uh, in the issue of, of nature. Uh, yes, that. absolutely. Absolutely, Nick. And I, I take the opportunity to pay tribute, actually, to the Swedish, the Swedish government. I go all the way back to even before Stockholm, um, 1972, when the Swedish ambassador to the United Nations, Sverka Asprom, really, really raised the flag and said, we have to do something. So, hello, Christina, and hello, uh, hello, Matthias, and well done, Sweden. Well, I think we are moving, and I know I don't have long, long, but I think this whole point of the integration of the different themes is actually extremely important. And looking to COP27, I think there is a huge opportunity, for example, to build the nature side of, as it were, the reaction to climate change into the whole package. I think it became absolutely clear from COP26 and even earlier that you can't get to where you want to get, which is 1.5 degrees Celsius or even better, unless nature plays its full role. And the idea is that nature might do, you know, 30% even of, of, of the ask. Well, there's some good signs. I'm not going to be negative here. And one of the signs, I think, is really the enthusiasm with which China has 
taken up the challenge here. Not only, of course, is China the, the you know the chair of the Kunming process, which at the moment you know needs to get to its, its final hurdle, but it's it's moving in the right direction. But China is also. Um, launching the or hosting the, the the Ramsar meeting in in November in Wuhan and I do want to draw attention to another initiative which the Chinese government has really taken in response to three resolutions by the CBD the CMS and uh, the Ramsar and also the IUCN, and that is to set up a World Coastal Forum. And for those who haven't yet clocked in on this one, look at worldcoastalforum.org, and you will see that the Chinese government has said, look, we do think we've got to move firmly here to protect the coastal regions of the world, and that is going to be a very important aspect of dealing with climate change, not only in the mitigation aspect, but also as far as the adaptation is concerned. And of course, I'm including in the coastal regions, I'm including coral reefs and so on. So yes, I am actually enthusiastic of the mission that the, the, the meaning is, is being absorbed, but will it be absorbed fast enough? That we don't yet know, but I, I, I have high hopes that the, the union of countries like Egypt, which is the new chair of COP, COP27, the UK, which is the old chair of COP26, and great countries like China, Australia, the EU, the EU who had major advances, will move the, move it along. So I'm being optimistic, All right. Nick, and this is and the they, moment for optimism. It's good to be optimistic. I, maybe we need to not wind up this panel right now, but I mean... Um, I mean, do you think there is a possibility, uh, and it's a tough one for you to answer really, Matthias, but is, because you're in government, but is there a possibility that through things like citizens' assemblies, through uh, the massive youth and civil society movements now, which are really, really, uh, that's one thing that's so tangible about the last 10 years, uh, maybe even less, can put that kind of pressure on governments to actually start making the really, really right decisions that don't seem schizophrenic anymore, but seem joined up. Mm. Anybody want to answer this? I think just, I mean, uh, the points that you're highlighting, the sort of the interlinkages between um, human rights, democratic development and democratic space mm -hmm. for all actors in society to be part of climate action, you know, from the youth movement, civil society, business, for everyone to be able to engage in in, in their own countries and in sort of putting forward suggestions on policies and kind of how to implement those policies. I think that's really a key aspect. So if we're sort of seeing more countries having that kind of democratic space for all actors to engage, I think that's one thing. And the sort of also speaking as a proud bureaucrat and picking up on the points which both Christina and Stanley made, you know, getting to sort of the basics of how do you integrate climate action and nature in your budget process, mm -hmm. in your legislative process, making sure that you sort of link Put, linking all the dots, also when it comes to gender equality, for example, and health, I mean, where we see the pandemic, sort of how do we make sure that we have a policy space that creates that kind of uh, interlinkages and benefits and finds the synergies between those? I think that's another sort of piece where, where all governments can work on making sure that we have those kind of institutions to right. drive climate action more forcefully. Yeah, I mean, briefly, uh, other two guests. I mean, is is this is this possible? I mean, do, do, are we just going to drift along uh, in in the same way, nibbling away at getting better rather than fully transformation, transformating transformating well, ourselves? Nick, I want to say, um, 
something which I, I would, would have said right at the beginning. We must never lose sight of the population driver. We've heard a lot about the economic growth driver. We mustn't lose sight of the population driver. And I pay, tri pay tribute also you know, to, to, to Sweden in this, in, in this regard as well. We've had world population conferences. We have said to ourselves, Mexico in 1994 said so. We've got to aim to bring down the world birth rate, and that has to be crucial. Right. Education. Uh, Christina. Well, I put my hope to the combination of pressure from civil society and business. Mm. Unfortunately, civil society takes time to organize and to, but it is, it's coming, coming more and more. And business knows that the future lies in a fossil free society that is good for economic development, it's good for compet competitive strength. And it's necessary, absolutely necessary to reach the fossil free society in order to, 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 uh, for societies to prosper. And that is, lies in the interest of all, not least business. So I hope that governments will really learn and, and take stock of, of all the knowledge that there is in how we solve this crisis that lies ahead of us. Good. Thank you. I always enjoy being in Sweden because I think the creativity of your industry is, is amazing. And I think the, the rest of the world has a lot to learn from the creativity of Sweden. But gentlemen, uh, Christina, uh, we have to end this part of the panel. I have to go over to our hubs now in Nairobi first uh, and uh, welcome them. Uh, I'm hoping to see, uh, is it Simon Anderson, the CCO of... You're going to have to tell me because I can't read this sort of Swedish-English writing that I've been given. Um, please, introduce yourself. Is it Simon? Great. How are you? How are you doing? Happy birthday. Yeah. Yeah, it's Timothy. What, what, uh, uh, what would you like to speak about? No, I'm just, uh, I'm, just late, I'm just updating you on, on the events that are taking place uh, here at the Nairobi Hub. Okay. We are having the engagement and it's really interesting to have uh, such a vibrant audience from the various uh, planning institutions yep. across, the, across, across the country. Uh, we, we are going to bring in our two panelists uh, who have been with us. That is Simon, uh, Madam Simon, who will take us through, will make her contribution regarding to today's uh, uh, discussion and also we've, we've, uh, we have Paris Joroge who is the uh, chief uh, environment uh, uh, personnel from World Rally Championship. So uh, welcome uh, Madam Simon. Christina you can stay or you can go it's fine. Okay. Hello Nairobi. Yeah. Lovely to be here. My name is Simone Anderson, and uh, I'm working for a company here called We Center for Electronics Management. And I'm happy and super proud to be Swedish today and uh, here. But it is time for urgent action. And uh, to be here, hearing also, we had a session here, questions from students. How do we do this? How do we reach out? Um, I'm so, I have such anxiety and really want to know from the panelists now here at the We Don't Have Time, how do we work with resource management? For this session, we have a keynote from Volvo, etc. So what do you see? What can we do to also bring it to the African continent uh, and be of service 
to help so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel? How can we uh, alternate and support looking at how the society is working here? That is one of my questions. And then uh, to go into that work, kind of resource management, not only for the local representative, of course. Um, how do we work with standards, quality standards, and testing of uh, reusable materials, components, etc., so that we can get them into a circularity? And also working with accountability and tra uh, traceability of different uh, items. Okay, those, that's a, a three-part question. Um, I, I just think you need to know that uh, right now, uh, this question is being asked to me because our panelists are not here right now. But also we've got Shweta Chakrabarti, the head of our US operations, uh, here uh, on the show as well. Maybe I'll just try and answer briefly one question. What we've been seeing here, uh, Simone, is as a very strong interest that we need to develop the circular economy in which nothing is waste. And you know that globally, less than 9% of the global economy is circular. How do you bring circular principles to an economy is one of the big challenges. Some countries are now pushing the boundaries, the Netherlands, for example. Um, but uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, that we need to reach a point at which governments understand that there is nothing called waste, that it is all a resource for another process. But sometimes the biggest challenge are actually the government policies that actually work against using waste. In a country like Sweden, for example, it's very difficult to actually reuse certain minerals that have been used in a, a process before uh, and they'd rather actually in the law have virgin materials mined halfway around the world using tons of energy uh, rather than using those materials that are in things like the wastewater stream in the household waste stream these are materials that could be brought back into the economy and being very useful so government standards are very important and uh, in the developing countries I think it's absolutely clear that, that one needs to work with some of the kind of standards institutions of say the United Nations and others uh, to actually bring those kinds of laws into place that allow waste to be reused as long as they're within health and safety standards, of course. And that's another key thing as well, particularly in a country like Kenya. Um, Shweta, maybe, um, I don't know if you heard what Simone said, but um, if you have any thoughts on this, uh, if not, what are your reflections on the show so far? Well, as far as I'm concerned, Nick, you are three expert panelists in one. So the <laughs> questions that the panelists might have not been able to answer, you just nailed it. Thank you for your insights. I'm going to throw one at you too. Oh, great. To continue to put you on the spot. So here in Washington, we are a stone's throw from the White House and from Capitol Hill. And what I've been hearing from this segment, the previous segments, is a real call to action from country leaders. And we know the United States has historically been leading the charge on ensuring that these global ambitions are met ahead of these various multilateral events, COP26 most recently, Stockholm Plus 50 coming up, of course, COP27 at the end of the year. So what is it that we're asking of US leadership right now? I would love your thoughts on this, Nick. What is it that we, if we talk loudly enough, might actually be overheard on Capitol Hill? We are really just that close. What do you think? What would what would the one ask be on this Earth Day of U.S. leadership? I think the one ask would be in respect to uh, climate change is that um, for many countries around the world, still to this day, the United States is seen as a major power and to have a major influence on the world, in which, of course, it does. But there are other major powers now. It's not like the old days of 1972. 
But I think there is still a sense that the United States has not gone as far and as fast as it could do with its climate action within the United States. But more importantly, because the biggest prize are the emissions we can reduce in the developing countries that we can avoid. And I think with the new administration to reverse some of the cuts to the overseas development aid budget in terms of support for developing countries would have multiple, 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 multiple benefits for the local people in those countries, but also for the global climate. And it's not, we're not talking trillions of dollars, right? I know that's always sensitive is money. But we're talking about basically investing in the future of our friends and our, our global family in different parts of the world, but in our own national interests, because we want to see climate change reduced. I think that would be one question. On the, uh, Simone, you're coming back a little bit uh, on the um, issue of resource efficiency, probably. And I, I can only briefly answer this because we have to move on to the next section. But what, what point do you wish to make, Simone? Yeah, I agree with you. The investments are needed. And uh, to look at the possibilities here to actually start new systems, not the old linear uh, business models that we have when it comes to resource efficiency. But of course, also when it comes to um, any country, I, I'm not going to point out any specific, there is also a lack of accountability when it comes to a lot of um, material and items sent here to the African continent for a long time and still is happening uh, because it's costly to take care of as much as we might be able to reuse it several times and years here. But we also have a very underdeveloped waste management structure in general. Yes. And if we talk electronic know, waste, it's... We're going to have to cut this to back down here, Simone, because we've got to move oh, on. Please, but, more investments. Yeah. That would be great. Exactly. exactly. Simone, thank you very much. I used to live in Kenya, so I know the country very well. Um, guys, thanks a lot. Thanks for being on the show. Loads of people have heard what you said, and I'm sure they'll come back with questions for what you actually proposed. Thank you. Bye.